0: Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. And then throughout the week, we meet in small groups, and you can find more information on that at smallgroups at faithonhill.com. We are also actively engaged in our community. We are supporting underprivileged youth at the school down the street. And if you would like more information on that, you can email adam at faithonhill.com. We have Good Friday and Easter coming up, so basically the plan is, you know, we'll have Palm Sunday throughout Holy Week. I will be posting uh, content throughout the week, talking about what our Lord did in His last week leading up to His suffering, His death, and His resurrection. Good Friday at 7 p.m., we will have a Good Friday service in person here at Faith on Hill, and then Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, of course, we will have a celebration service that morning. If you uh, have been checking out our church online and you'd like to come in person, uh, this is a great opportunity. This is a great time to come and gather with us. If you have a Bible, open it to the Gospel of Matthew. We will be in chapter 8 as we continue our study through Matthew's Gospel account of the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 8 starting in verse 16, says that when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So he had a large crowd gather that was so large he had to go up on top of a big hill to give the sermon on the mount. And then he goes back down after that sermon and he heals the leper and he heals the paralyzed servant of the centurion and he heals the Peter's mother-in-law, and then he heals many in the town of Capernaum, so much so that this crowd has grown even larger. Something you'll see through the gospel accounts is that Jesus did all that he could to keep his following at a minimum leading up till Palm Sunday. At Palm Sunday, he said, yep, I'm the Messiah, gather the crowds. But before that, he did everything he could to keep the crowds at bay. So he says, all right, we've got a big following here. We're going to go over there where there isn't people. So that's the scene I want to set for us, that Jesus is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he is getting a boat ready. His followers are getting a boat ready to travel to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that is where we find ourselves when it says in verse 19 that a teacher of the law, one of the scribes, one of the Pharisees, came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, which is speaking of himself, it's a messianic title, Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This morning, we're going to talk about the cost of following Jesus. The first cost that is brought up, these aren't the only costs, but uh, the cost of following Jesus, the first one that brought up is this teacher. Now, maybe you say, Adam, I've always heard that the gospel, that the Christian faith is a free gift, that Jesus gives freely his salvation to all who would believe. That's true. But just because something is free doesn't mean it doesn't cost something. It costs Jesus infinitely more than we could ever understand to secure our salvation. But let's not kid ourselves that there is some kind of cost. We all have this. If you got a free trip, let's say that you won a a raffle, you go to the, the fundraiser, Uh, maybe at work or for for a neighborhood school or for a charity and you buy a raffle ticket and you win an all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii or to Cabo or some place that you want to go this time of year where there's a lot of sunshine. Uh, I've been watching spring training, you know, on TV and I was thinking, man, I'd love to win an all-expenses-paid trip to spring training down in Arizona some year. But just because it's all expenses. Your airfare is pay- paid for. Your hotel is paid for. Your car rental is paid for. They even give you a certain amount of money that uh, is for uh, meals. Let's say all of that's covered. There's still a cost. You have to take time off of work. You have to uh, physically go. You know, the, 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 there is a cost. It's it, There's something that you pay, but you say, well, the The benefits of a free trip to Hawaii, a free trip to Cabo, a free trip to spring training, the benefits far outweigh any cost. You know, I have to to do things to get ready. I have to pack. Oh, sure, I'll do all of that for that kind of trip. So that's the kind of costs we're talking about. We're not talking about like, I have to do something to earn my salvation. I have to do something so that my faith is real. But we are saying there are costs to following Jesus. Jesus himself said, if who among you is going to build a tower, and he uses this word tower, which would be what they would put up in their fields, we would say, who among you is going to build a back shed or remodel their kitchen without sitting down and saying, how much is this going to cost? How much time do is it going to take? Do I have the skills to do it, or do I need to hire somebody for this part of the job or that part of the job? Of course not. You wouldn't just start piecemeal, you would sit down and plan it out. Jesus said the same thing is true of our lives. If you say, I want to follow Jesus, but I haven't thought through what that means, we should. That's something Jesus said. So this teacher of the law comes and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And what's Jesus's response? I'm homeless. Jesus left his family where he slept was with friends. He was couch surfing. I don't say that to demean or belittle our Lord in any way, but Jesus was homeless. Jesus died in poverty. He, he lived because God, his Father in heaven, provided for Jesus, God the Son on earth. But his provision was of subsist- subsistence in nature. And so he says to this teacher, you want to go with me wherever I go. That's great. But I want to tell you what that means. If you physically come with me, you don't know where you will sleep from one night to the next. And one night we might be camping. And another night maybe we are staying with some friends. And another night maybe somebody opens their home to them that's a stranger, but they are moved by the Spirit of God to open their home. That's the life that Jesus led. He said, you can come with, but this is what it means. And the teacher does not get on the boat. Why? The implication. He's never referenced. There's no disciple who's referenced that was a teacher of the law until you get Saul who becomes Paul and writes a huge chunk of the New Testament. But that's later on. The implication is that he doesn't get on the boat. Here's the boat. They're getting ready. He comes up and he says, I will go with you wherever you're going. You're leaving here. You're going somewhere else. I want to go with you and follow you. I've seen your teaching. I've seen the miracles. I've been around you. I want what you are doing. And Jesus says, great. Here's the cost. It's basically like saying, hey, I'll go with, I'll do whatever you want, Jesus. And Jesus is like, you sure about that? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And the question we have is what keeps us off the boat? The boat's getting ready. The boat's getting ready to leave. Jesus is getting on the boat. What keeps us from getting on the boat? Can I tell you the truth? This helps me to understand another part of the Bible. You know, there's parts of the Bible that are very clear. I really do believe and live by the maxim, the truism that says the whole Bible is equally true, but not all of the Bible is equally clear. But there are some parts that are very clear, and I can understand them. There's some parts that are less clear, and maybe there's debate or discussion over what it means. One of those parts is in the book of James in the New Testament. In James chapter 2, verse 18, James says, "'You have faith, but I say, show me your faith by your works.'" and your deeds. And and those of us who grew up in grace-filled churches say, wait a minute. There is nothing that we need to do to earn the love of God. There's nothing that we need to do to get into heaven. We just need to believe in Jesus because he has done all of the work, and I believe that is true. But this teacher of the law believed. Why else would he come up to Jesus Jesus and say, I want to go with you. Here's somebody who knew the Bible front to back, beginning to end, Genesis to Malachi, which is what they had at the time. He would have known all of the Hebrew scripture. He would have had more of it memorized than we will ever guarantee it. And he saw Jesus and he says, this is the Messiah. I want to go where he's going. And he doesn't get on the boat. And there's a lot of people who believe in God. A lot of people believe in God. Most people believe in God, in fact. You know, uh, I know people who are atheists and agnostic, and they say, look at the decline of faith in America. And in one hand, I agree with them, and I mourn that. In another hand, I say, the decline of true Christian faith in America is undeniable. But the decline of faith in America, most Americans believe in God. A shrinking number of Americans believe in a general biblical idea, and then an even more shrinking number of Americans believe in Jesus as the only way, truth, and the life, that the Bible is God's authoritative word and contains all that is necessary for salvation. But most people believe in God. And so you say, oh, I believe. I have faith. I grew up in the church. I just don't have this or that. But the question is, you have belief, but do you have faith? And I'll tell you, I've struggled with James chapter 2 where he talks about works and deeds as somebody who grew up in a very grace-based Christianity. What do I do with this? This helps me explain it. James is basically saying to people like this teacher of the law, you say you have faith, you say you believe, but I don't see you getting on the boat. It's not about having to earn my salvation. Jesus did all of that work on the cross. Jesus raised me from the dead spiritually through the same power that he raised himself from the dead three days after his crucifixion. There is nothing I need to do to be forgiven more. Jesus has forgiven everything that we have ever done. But I need to get on the boat. I need to get on the boat. I need to be where Jesus is. Somebody asked me if I if they what I think about this idea of can the, can I lose my salvation not if I'm with Jesus. Not if I'm with Jesus. I got to get on the boat. And that's a fair question to say what keeps us from getting on the boat. And then someone else comes up to Jesus verse 16, or sorry, not verse 16, verse 21. Another disciple said to him, "Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So someone else wants to come with Jesus. And Jesus's response seems harsh to us in what seems like a fairly reasonable request. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I have to go to my dad's funeral. Can I catch up with you? And Jesus says, no, follow me now and let someone else bury your father. That seems harsh to us. And I might agree if that's what was going on, but I'm not sure that that is what's going on. I want you to think about this. Whenever I read something, especially in the Bible, but this is true in general, I read a news story, I read a blog post, I hear a podcast, and somebody makes an emphatic statement. TED Talks are the worst about this. If you've ever seen a TED Talk, they're the worst about this. Somebody will make an emphatic, definitive statement. And there's a lot of emotional buildup and they get the audience worked up with it. And they make this very definitive statement, the, the premise, the thesis of their TED talk. And there have been times where I've been like, yes, yes. And then afterwards, I've sat and thought about it and said, wait a minute. What about this? What about this? What about this? I think the same is true here where we read this and we go, man, Jesus is being a jerk to this guy. Maybe we would say something stronger about how we feel about it. Until I ask the what about this, what about this, what about this. If your dad is really dead, what are you doing there? If your dad is on death's door, if you're like, Jesus, my dad could die any day. Why are you there? Why aren't you with him? If your dad has died and you need to go do the funeral, why are you still there? The majority of Bible teachers, Bible scholars, and commentators that I have ever read, in, in I've, been, I've been studying the Bible for the purposes of, of teaching the Bible for over 20 years. And in that time, I, the, the, the vast majority of every Bible scholar I've ever read has said that the, the idea was and, and we don't really understand it in this way because of just our cultural differences, but the idea was that his father wasn't dead yet, so he didn't feel the freedom to leave his father's house yet. But once his father died, then he would feel the freedom to go and serve Jesus. Um, the, we don't really have that in our society. I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary Gyro Dreams of Sushi. Uh, it was on Netflix. I think it's on uh, Hulu now. But it's about this uh, Michelin-starred, world-famous sushi restaurant in Japan. And the oldest son has basically done menial work for his father his whole life, for like over 40, 50 years. While the younger son in Japanese culture is free to do whatever he wants, so he's gone off and had fun and started a restaurant of his own. But the oldest son has to stay, and he doesn't feel the freedom to go and do anything different. He has to wait for his dad to retire or die. And that's a cultural thing that is still common in Japan and other parts of the world. So that could be what's happening here. He's saying, my father's not dead yet. Once my father is dead and buried, then I will have the freedom to go. That could be what he's saying. It's also, let's just say worst case scenario. And I mean this worst case loosely, but let's say worst case scenario. It's also possible that the man was there and he's there to see Jesus, and he is truly moved and he wants to follow Jesus as, as one of Jesus' disciples. And then just as he's getting ready to go, somebody comes and says, I'm so sorry, but your father has died suddenly and unexpectedly. And so maybe he's just going over to Jesus saying, I was ready to go with you, but I just got this news. Do you trust that Jesus knew what the right thing to say was. That's where faith comes into play. We asked a minute ago, what does it take to keep you from the boat? You know, for the teacher of the law, when Jesus says, here's what life following me will be like, that kept him off the boat. For this young man, it was this desire to some obligation that he had towards his father in the worst case scenario that his father really had just died and there had been a tragedy and he needed to go bury him and Jesus comes off as really harsh. I can take one verse on its own or I can take the entirety of the gospel accounts and say what I know of Jesus from the gospels and from my own experience following him for decades now is that if Jesus says this to this guy, it's because it was the right thing and it's what this guy needed to hear and it was the true thing and it was in some way that I can't understand the loving thing. But I don't believe that's what's happening. I I believe that the chances are his father was not dead, was not on death's doorstep, but that he was waiting around because for him following Jesus was not at that point convenient. He's basically saying, Jesus, I will serve you when it's convenient for me to do so. And how many people have, I mean, just experientially have done the same thing? Jesus, I will, cons- I will serve you when it's convenient to do so, or I will serve you until it is no longer convenient to do so. Here's what I mean by that. I've known people, friends, people that I care about. I'm not talking bad about them. I'm just being honest. I've known people who believe in Jesus They believe that out of all of the faiths in the world that Christianity is probably the true way. But they have their career, their education, or something else always comes up. And so they say, you know what? It's just not convenient for me right now to be actively involved in my faith. It's not convenient for me right now with my life to do this. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't you know, work hard at your job, that if you're in school, like obviously school is going to consume a lot of your time. If you have kids, your kids are going to consume. Obviously, I have kids. I've been through school. I, I you know, I'm actively involved in my community. I, I, things take up time. Totally get that. And you have to kind of pair through like, hey, do I really have time to do this, this, and that? I, I totally agree with that. But I've also known people who are the other way. They serve Jesus until it's no longer convenient to do so. I'll serve Jesus when I'm just goofing off. You know, I, I I believe in God and I, you know, so I'm not going out to the, the bar, I'm not partying, I'm not going crazy. So I'll serve in church because that's something I can do socially. And then, you know what, now life has changed and, you know, one of the real big challenges that I've seen is people who are like, I know how to serve God in my teens and I know how to serve God in my 20s, but then I got married or, or I, my career kind of got in focus and now I'm in my 30s or my 40s and I'm like struggling. How do I serve God? Because it was really convenient to do so in my 20s, in my teens, or maybe my early 30s, but now it's not convenient to do so, but I still know that I need to find a way to be active and engaged in my faith. And I have found some common obstacles that come up, this sort of like, I'll serve you when I can bury my father's kind of thing, uh, self-gratification. And that's the kind of person that says, I will serve Jesus later. I am going to pursue my, my own gratification. I'm going to party hard. I'm going to live wild. And then later I'll put all that stuff away and I'll do what God wants. Or there's self-determinism. You know, the, think of that uh, poem Invictus, you know, I am the captain of my own sea, I'm the master of my own destiny, uh, that, you know, I will determine what I do, and I am not going to surrender my life to what God wants for me. Self-determinism, or self-determinism could also look like the person who says, you know what, I, I'm, I'm open to following Jesus, but there are these things in the Bible, there are these things in here that I don't want to deal with. And I'm going to determine what I believe. And I will, I will take the parts of Christianity, the parts of Jesus, the parts of the Bible that I can hang with, and I will reject the other parts. And, every, and, and you think, oh yeah, I know, it's those people that do that. I'll tell you, every group has people that does this. You might think, oh, that's what those liberal Christians are doing. They're just taking the parts of God that they like, and they're ignoring the parts about morality, or the parts about God creating the the earth, or the parts about the supernatural, and they're just throwing all that out. Really? Really? Consume conservative media. Consume conservative media and tell me the parts that are okay with a biblical morality. I'm, I'm... If I'm going to say something right now that makes you mad, I would much rather that you send me an email, adam at faithonhill.com. You show up on a Sunday morning and just talk with me. I can can buy you coffee. I would much rather talk with somebody that I've kind of ticked off uh, than to have somebody just go, he doesn't know he said, because maybe I'm saying something and then after we talk about it, you go, oh, okay, I thought he was saying something different or it's a point I hadn't considered or you know what, we just agree to disagree. But let me say something here. I believe that if I were to go on any major conservative, politically conservative media platform, whether it's Fox News or Newsmax or One America Network or whatever, podcasts, you name it. I believe that if I went on there and presented a biblically conservative view of morality, they would reject it too. They might couch it. There might be things that they agree with that somebody on uh, CNBC or um, you know, like a, a progressive podcast or something wouldn't agree with. That's true, but I believe they would reject it just the same. This self-determinism, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. This is one of the reasons that, that I, we talk about kind of the messiness of faith right now. There are people in our church that do not believe what the Bible says about certain things to do with Human sexuality, uh, about uh, what the Bible says about refugees, what the Bible says about creation. Uh, although we are we are very open-handed on that one, I'm, uh, but but follow me on this. You're welcome here, and at the same time, you have to know that we believe the Bible is true. And self-determinism says, "I won't get on the boat. I won't get on the boat because." Of this barrier. I won't get on the boat. It's not because I want to bury my father, but it's because I don't want to accept the parts of the Bible I don't like, the parts of the gospel I don't like. That's self determinism. Another major obstacle for getting on the boat is self justification this idea that, wait, I'm going to figure out my own stuff first. And then once I've figured out my own stuff, then I'll come to you, Jesus. But the gospel, the Christian faith says that we just come to God and Jesus figures out our stuff for us. I don't need to figure out my own stuff first. I just need to know that Jesus is true and submit myself and surrender myself to his Holy Spirit. But who does get on the boat? Verse 23 it says that then he, Jesus, got on the boat and his disciples followed him. So the 12 disciples got on the boat. And, and people think that this next thing is a different story. It's not connected. I believe it's totally connected to these two other guys. Verse 24, suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat and Jesus was sleeping. And the disciples went to wake him saying, Lord, save us, we are going to drown. So the disciples got on the boat and they get on the boat And there is a storm. And some of these guys are experienced sailors. They're fishermen. They know the wind and waves. And they believe that they are done for. You might think the cost of following Jesus. Women and men throughout the centuries have died for their faith in Jesus. Sometimes they have died at the hands of godless men. I think of uh, people like Polycarp who was brought before the emperor and he was going to be killed for his faith and he was given one last chance to deny Jesus. And he says, for 80 years I have served him and he has never done me wrong. How could I do him any wrong now? And he was killed. Christians have been killed, have been persecuted throughout the centuries. Sometimes they've been killed at the hands of people who claim to be the church. You say, I don't want to follow Jesus because of that church over there or that Christian over there or that person I see, uh, you know, that says they're a Christian. That's been true all through the history of the Christian faith. How many people have died as faithful believers in Jesus at the hands of faithless church people? And you might say, well, if I follow Jesus, am I going to die for my faith? Probably not. I I mean, it's such a rarity that somebody from America dies for their faith. It's such a rarity that that happens, that it becomes newsworthy and people write books and, you know, blogs and movies about it and the whole thing. But don't think that there isn't a cost, that there isn't a storm, that you won't go through a season. But here's the thing. Why did the disciples experience this life-threatening storm? Because they were with Jesus. The teacher of the law who didn't get on the boat because he didn't want the life that Jesus lived and was calling him to, he didn't experience the storm. The young man who wanted to bury his father first, he didn't experience the storm. The guys who did what Jesus wanted, they're the ones who were in the life-threatening storm. Why did the disciples experience the storm? Because they were with Jesus. Why did disciples experience the power of Jesus? Verse 26, Jesus gets up. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm and the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Why did the disciples experience the power of Jesus? Because they were with him in the storm they would not have experienced the power of God outside of that storm. They wouldn't have. Why why don't I see God moving in my life? Why don't I see God's power? Why don't I see the Spirit of God working? Maybe because you haven't stepped into the storm where Jesus is. Maybe you haven't stepped into the mess where Jesus is. Maybe you haven't stepped into those uncomfortable spaces where Jesus is. Because there you'll see things happening. Because there you'll see things moving. I know good, godly people who are in the middle of the storm right now. I know Christians that are holding prayer meetings and bomb shelters in the Ukraine. I know Christians who are standing in the midst of unimaginable storm right here in our community. Jesus is there. And if you don't want to get on the boat because you don't want to get in the storm, maybe you got on the boat and now you're regretting it because you're in the middle of the storm, Jesus is there. There was a cost to the disciples for following Jesus. It wasn't safe. But it was worth it. Remember we said at the very beginning, you get an all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii or Cabo or, you know, spring training or whatever. And there's a cost, but it's it's so worth it to go that you don't even question the cost. It's so worth it to go that you don't even question it. I don't have the answers for everything. There are things that I don't understand. There are things that I'm still working through. There are questions that I still ponder. And I trust that as a church family, we'll work through them together. There's times where I've said to, you know, the small group that I'm a part of at church, you know, hey, guys, I'm just going to be honest. I don't understand this part of the Bible. I don't understand how this works in 2022. Uh, Can we talk through this together? I don't have the answer for everything, but I know that Jesus is good. And I know that following him is worth it. And I know that whatever it costs will be immeasurably and, and imaginably outweighed by the rewards for following Jesus. And I can set up all of these barriers. It's interesting to me, Jesus gave honest answer to the teacher of the law. And the teacher of the law didn't get on the boat. But you know the second guy, Jesus didn't even give him a barrier. That guy came with his own barrier. I can set up my own barriers to following Jesus. And I have to remind myself and remember that it has always been worth it to follow Jesus. Always. What's keeping you from getting on the boat? And if you're in the storm, have you lost sight of the fact that Jesus is in the boat with you? Jesus was there with them all the time. They had faith to get on the boat. We need faith to stay in the boat. If you or the person that says, I have belief, but I haven't engaged that belief into faith that will save me, and I haven't gotten on the boat, there is an invitation right now where you are to call out to God. You can out loud in your heart, whatever, call out to God. And if you're on the boat and you're in the middle of the storm and you're saying, but what about this? What about this? What about this? remember that Jesus is with you and don't look at the wind. Don't look at the waves. Where's Jesus? He's on the boat with you. I want to invite you to actively engage with Jesus with us as a church family. And if you've just been checking us out online, uh, watching, maybe this is your first time watching one of our, our videos or listening to one of our podcasts, where you have for a while, but you haven't been actively part of a church family, this is an invitation to do so. We have small groups that meet in person and online throughout the week. We have uh, multiple options there. You can email groups at com, And we'd love to see you come out for a Sunday morning. Now, if you, if you can't come on Sunday mornings and you say, hey, that's great. We're happy that you're here for this online service. But That's why we have small groups that meet through all different times of the week so that we have connection points that aren't just limited by one day. So we'd love to see you be part and join with us as we serve Jesus together in our community as a community. God bless you. We'll see you next week at 10.30 a.m. And don't forget that we have Good Friday and Easter Sunday services coming up in April.